0: Welcome to another episode of Downtime with the Cranston Public Library. We're a podcast for cool people who love libraries where we talk about what we've been reading, what we've been watching, and what we've been loving. I'm your host, Tayla, the branch librarian at the Oakland Branch Library, and my pronouns are she, her.
1: Hi, my name is Dawn Wing. I am Associate Professor of Library Services at Metro State University at St. Paul, Minnesota. I am also an artist, author, poet, identify as Chinese Americans, and I use she, her pronouns.
0: Thank you for joining us this afternoon, Dawn. Um, A little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about some of the work that you've been doing highlighting Chinese American stories. But before we get into that, let's start off, as we
1: always do, with what have you been reading? I love this question. (laughs) So um, I I uh, got actually learned about these graphic memoirs because I'm really into comics and storytelling, sharing narratives through word and image, um, particularly those uh, from underrepresented voices. So I'll start off with one I just finished called In Limbo. I don't know if you've heard this, um, it's about a Korean American. Uh, author who talks about her um, struggling with depression and trigger warning. She she does talk about self-harm and um, suicidal attempts. And I was like, blown away. I actually saw this from my friend, shout out Lisa Yoksen porter uh, She's a librarian out in Seattle. And she shares what she reads, what she has been reading on her Instagram. So yay for librarians and social media because that's actually helps me keep current <laughs> what, what what is out these days. Um, because in my job I do a lot of teaching and I work in higher ed, and so I can be uh, kind of a little behind in terms of what uh, what's out. So um, I got really into it. I read this all in one go, pretty much because it's just um, just really. Beautifully illustrated, um, very imaginative in terms of just how the author superimposes imagery, just um, kind of being able to show her inner state and in juxtaposition with like what she's experiencing at the moment, which I think is so hard to capture in words or images, especially when it comes to you know, when someone's being triggered by something or someone's just like reacting and emotionally and it's like your inner world, you're just, it's very jarring. And so there are a lot of these images where I felt like the author, Deb J.J. Lee, it was just something I have not read before. And particularly of, um, in the words of, of an Asian American woman, uh, you know, depression, suicide rates are pretty high uh, among Asian American girls and women, and that's not really talked about a lot. And I think for me, it struck a chord because there were some scenes and some, uh, you know, exchanges that she has with her mother that were similar, actually. And it was, um, I think people from different cultural backgrounds can can relate. It's not just like an Asian mom thing, you know, mother-daughter thing. There were kind of cultural particularities, but there were also sort of like um, just the author sharing, hey, this is, this is actually about trauma, right? And a, a lot of people, <laughs> like um, a lot of families deal with unprocessed intergenerational trauma. So this book is just, it's a very powerful read that I think, if you were to do like a reader's advisory with teenagers, um, it, it's a really important book. I think that, oh, I wish I had this when I was in high school. <laughs> I'll just <laughs> say that. You know, this this author, um, she, she graduated high school um, maybe 2016. She kind of puts the date. So she's younger than I am. Um, and I graduated high school from, in 2001. <laughs> right. So this is kind of before... You know, like, these topics were are as widely discussed as they are, and certainly in this format, right, in comics. Like, if I, I remember when I was in, you know, I grew up in Queens, New York, so I went to Flushing Library in Main Street, Queens. Shout out to Flushing Library. I love that place. If you ever visit New York, it is worth hopping on the 7 train, going to the last stop. It's a beautiful building. It's so diverse. Their collections are amazing. And at the time, there wasn't a, a, such a thing as teen the teen section or YA, like it's just changed so much in the past 25 years. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I would just wander the aisles. I'd go to poetry eight eleven, you know, I knew my Dewey decimals. Right. (laughs) Um, and, uh, I, I just, uh, there were some comics, but certainly not the variety and not, you know, uh, anything that was marketed or geared for teenagers. Mm -hmm. And man, if I picked up this book when I was 16, I'd be like, I feel seen. I feel heard. I'm not the only one, right? Like I would just, I was reading this and I was like, yes, I wasn't able to articulate that to myself because like, what is happening? What is, what is going on? Because a lot of these troubles, it's just so hidden you know, uh, when it comes to trauma, traumatic events and mental illness. And so this, I highly recommend this book. It's just something I've never read before. Um, and another one I'm uh, still finishing up that also I heard from another library. And it's uh, Our Stories Carried Us Here. It's a graphic novel anthology. T. Bui, who did The Best We Could Do. It's a really critically acclaimed graphic memoir about the author's parents' experiences as Vietnamese refugees, to the U.S. and the intergenerational traumas. Um, so anyway, she wrote the forward to this, a very beautifully written forward about the importance of reading about the experiences of refugees. Um, and in Minnesota, there's a lot of refugee communities. I mean, we have a large Hmong population. And, you know, back in the eight, 70s, 80s, a lot of them came as refugees. So there's like second, third generation Hmong Americans in Minnesota I believe it's the largest in the country. Wow. Yeah, and we do have a number of Vietnamese Americans, maybe not as large as in California, um, and Somali, we have a huge Somali uh, refugee population, and other, other groups as well. Currently, a number of Karen refugees from Myanmar. Um, and, a, and a lot of these uh, are uh, communities that I serve. A lot of these students mm-hmm. that come to the school attend the school. I work at Metro State University. A lot of them are Somali-Americans, Hmong-Americans. And so this is a really great book for me to have a deeper understanding of my the communities I serve and the students and, and their backgrounds. And uh, it's a really great book, and I've never seen anything like it either. So there's this uh, organization called Green Card Voices based in Minnesota. So they invited um, refugees to write the text, and then they would Pair, the, pair them with the, I don't know how they decided to choose the illustrator, but the illustrators themselves are also immigrants. Mm-hmm. And so it's really cool because before you read the stories, they do a little intro of who the writer is and who the illustrator is. And I just love that. It's like we get to know who they, these individuals are first in their backgrounds. And um, it's just really helpful context before diving into the stories of how they came to the U.S., I love this kind of collaboration. I hope to see more of it um, because I just feel like this allows people more insight and hopefully more compassion and are more informed about what's going on in terms of immigration policies and um just understand that you know the rhetoric that we've heard about immigrants at our border that they're criminals and maligning them you know they're just using up our resources or they're threats to us it's like no they're they're like, you know, if you were in a place where there was warfare or just extreme poverty or just situations where it's like you, you have no choice but to leave and where would you go? You know, it's like only until we can really be in their shoes. And this is a great way. I can't exactly know what it's like to witness, you know tanks and bullets, like, you know, flying amok every day, you know, but maybe some of my students witnessed that, you know, maybe, you know, their family members did. And these stories are a a bridge, you know, into at least trying to understand and seeing and hearing directly from their own testaments, you know, of what they've been through and how hard it is, you know, to um, be a refugee on many levels, like emotionally, but also politically and bureaucratically of just like, this is how, how it is. And um, I think that anyone who, uh, especially those of us who work, you know, in public libraries or schools, you know, and we serve students who are immigrants, like this is just a must read. It's definitely like, we need to read this to have, but to be better educated on current events, on historical events, even, oh, this, this is what happened in Yemen, or this is what happened in Myanmar. And This is, you know, people went on rafts. People were exploited and they still persisted because it was better than staying, right? Yeah. And so um, even though I'm third generation, you know, my grandfather immigrated when it was illegal for people from China to immigrate. That didn't stop people from immigrating. I mean, that's still the same, similar case to this day, right? Like, Yeah. So that's kind of maybe segues into me, maybe sharing why I do the work I do. But I love to read comics. Again, that's just is really pushing the boundaries. It's, you know, it's just back when I was a teenager going to the public libraries, I was not seeing books like this, you know? And I wish I did because, again, we did not learn about this in school and I went to pretty good high school, but the curriculum was just very, like, whitewashed. You know, I'll just say that. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just, I wish that there were more um, honest, you know, primary sources and engaging texts that really show um, emotionally that hits, you know, people on an emotional level, like just these very human experiences, right? Like that's what we, I believe that's what we need more of in this world. Just this connection to our own humanity and kind of, um, yeah, just, you know, reminding ourselves, like it could be us, (laughs) it could be us having these struggles and, um, another book that I read was, um, it was also another recommendation from my library friend, Aliza. I think the title is, I Have OCD, Everything is an Emergency. <laughs> and I, um, I picked up that book because I, I don't have OCD, but I, ha- I just finished teaching a course where a student self, they shared that they did And reading that book really helped me understand a little bit better, you know, about, you know, their, the tendencies and just kind of the communications. And that student was really great in terms of being able to be very, um, communicative and, and self-aware, you know, of, of, um, their, the, the OCD and ADHD that they, they have. And I, I was like, wow, you know, thank goodness for these books and for these brave authors for sharing their stories, because again, it helps build just empathy to be like, wow, this student has the awareness of what's going on and just, and, and being able to communicate with me, like what's going on. And I was better able to help them and to be more patient, quite honestly. And um, just tying in with what I said before about the importance of connecting to our own humanity and, in order to be able to, I just, I guess, speak in terms of our roles as librarians and people in these professions where we're helping people. Um, you know, patience is really key. I think I I learned that about myself. I was like, you know what, I'm going to try to be more patient. Like in general, like just oh, okay, this person is they're they're not acting out. I use I'm using air quotes. You know, they're not they're not being difficult. Again, I'm using air quotes just to be difficult. It's just sort of like they they. It's, it's something that they're working on. And I think in general, not just in the framework of mental illness, but just we're all going through stuff, Like, yeah. you know, and how do we not react and just try to step back and be like, maybe someone is triggered from a trauma. And it's just like, how can we take a step back and, and kind of assess and, and try to see someone and hear someone? Maybe I can just ask, like, what's going on or... How can I help? Or you know, like let's just try to work work with one another. Yeah, it's just kind of helped me to also be like, hey, you know what? Like these reading these stories, it gives permission, right? This story got published, and so there's less stigma, right, around talking yeah. about trauma and less stigma talking about mental illness. And um, I'm very heartened, and I I just. You know, I'm just like, these are stories that I want to promote because um, it's just it could really save lives. I mean, I'm not just like, you know, it could really just, even for someone to feel like I am not alone, right? And that's why we read. That's why we yeah. try to access information. It's just like, whether it's going on YouTube and, you know, listening to lectures, which is what I do, you know, this, let's remember. Like, let's remember why we're doing what we're doing. And um, it's this sense of just... Uh, wanting to connect and to build community, you know? So anyway, that's my spiel about about those books that I highly recommend.
0: Yeah, I love graphic memoir. And so I'll definitely have to check those out. Um, but something that I was thinking about while you were talking is also, and I think the beauty of graphic memoir, or at least it was graphic memoir versus just like memoir that that made me realize that like, because I always thought, like, oh, I'm just a normal person. You know what mm. I mean? Like, my experience isn't important because I'm just, like, an everyday person. But you yeah. talked about, like, someone who wrote about their experience with OCD. Like, they were just a normal, regular person. Or even in Limbo, it seems like she, you know, didn't have an ex- anything really extraordinary about her life except, you know, the struggles that she went through that she felt important to share. So I feel like graphic memoir has definitely made me go like oh if there's a story out there that I'm not seeing like that was my life experience that's still an important story to get out there because maybe someone else will read that story and go oh my god like that happened to me or something similar happened to me like I feel so seen by by that narrative so I think it's important even if people think oh, you know, like nothing is really important about my life if there's something that you struggled with that you don't see out there. Um, and I mean, I'm saying this and I'm also like not artistically talented at all. So like I do, I still have yet to decide what format the things that I feel like I would like to see in the world will end up in the world if ever. But, um, but I think it's important that even if you're like, I'm just a person, you know, I'm just a librarian in the smallest state I came from pretty much what might be the smallest town in the smallest state of our country. Um, That's a good title. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's catchy. Yeah, (laughs) I don't know. There might be a town smaller than the town I grew up in, but it was still pretty darn small. I I was a graduating class of 114. Wow. Yeah. That is small. (laughs) That is small and i remember like i remember the exact number because it was such a small number
1: yeah um, i mean even visually i mean i just think the power of telling stories with word and image images can really capture i think emotional states in a way that only words can't and especially when there's like surreal elements or just sort of like you can really it could be a really effective way to capture um, dis- disassociation or humor or humor like so I have I finally so everything is an emergency an OCD story in words and picture by Jason Adam Katzenstein I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that and this person if <laughs> you see the cover of it it's this adult guy like you know crouched with like a record player on his head and like so even visually like you know like you can kind of infuse humor and i think graphic memoirs with the visuals it can actually also help dispel misconceptions right and stereotypes around like mental illness or disorders and so um it just allows so much freedom you know for the imagination and for silence like i appreciate panels where it's wordless; it's just you're kind of like in someone's headspace or there's just like this interaction or, or you know and it's just like I'm just so ex- I, as someone who grew up reading Sunday Strips, Calvin and Hobbes, Garfield, um, Mouse, it's so heartening to see this embrace and this evolution of just how people are really pushing the envelope with storytelling with words and images. So, yeah, so I believe you can Taylor. you know, <laughs> z- a zine, you can create a zine or it doesn't have to be a graphic novel. you know it could be a gra- a comics poem or um or whatever concrete pulp. I don't know it's just like there's different ways to play with images with words and mm. vice versa.
0: So. yeah I very recently we we uh, maybe like two months ago now it's so hard we record every week time is like a blur um, but we talked to two other librarians one of them who makes zines as well as collects them at their library and then someone who um, did a zine program with teens and then they hold all the zines as part of the collection after the the program. And yeah, that kind of, like, got zines on my radar a little bit more, and it definitely is a form that I've been thinking about more um, since having heard from them and and heard more about it.
1: Yeah, it's a great way to also, when you have weeded magazines, like for for those (laughs) who...
0: Yes, we weed so many magazines. Maybe I'll just hold a few back.
1: Yes, collaging. (laughs) I've worked with a number of middle schoolers. Like, sometimes I'll do community, you know, who have middle schoolers visiting my university or I get asked to do public library programming. Um, I love the young people a lot because they just dive right in. And they all see stacks of, like, we did magazines, like National Geographic. Sometimes you have to go through whatever. But, like, um, usually if it's, like, the... They love animals, anything, right? Like, oh, you know, and they, I'm like, have at it. You can destroy these. You're allowed to. We, we did something called weeding, meaning we, like, we don't circulate these anymore, so destroy them, <laughs> Rip yeah. pages. They're like, yeah. anything hands-on and yeah. cut, and they get so lost and it's just so cool some of them just do wordless scenes like they'll superimpose i'm like yeah go go dada go surrealist like just superimpose like it doesn't need to make sense i you know they can if some students want prompts i will just give them prompts like you can do a how-to zine or whatever some of them don't need it um one uh, student did a mental health scene and they created a character called mental health panda and i was like wow that's a great idea (laughs) this is so brilliant and like animes i'm not a huge manga reader but um if they want to i was like make a little mini manga zine why not you know and i tell them like once you finish your copy it's this one sheet of paper printer paper you can easily make copies refold it distribute it Slip it into library books that's what I used to do um again stuff I wish like when I was in high school I knew about I mean I know zines were around back then too and before but I was just like they certainly weren't a part of like the school curriculum or I didn't know about them in my public library but
0: yeah I, they right, were kind of like a niche yeah. underground yeah. culture until I think somewhat recently
1: yeah so Do it, Taylor. I (laughs) you got those weeded magazines? They're just waiting to be torn up and have another life as a zine inside a zine. (laughs) So yeah.
0: All right, I don't want to skip over it, um, but we are getting short on time. So, Mm -hmm. like, are you watching anything
1: interesting? I loved Beef on Netflix. Oh, I.
0: I've only, I've heard people talk about it because mm. the the Walking Dead guy is in it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Steven Stephen Yuen? Yuen, yeah, Uan. All right,
1: yeah, he's he's great. I but I,
0: I think... like know nothing about it. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I <laughs> should go into it blind if I watch it. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's best that way. I didn't really. I I I honestly didn't know anything about it either. Um, I knew about Steve Uan. I've heard of Ali Wong before. I had not seen. I love I'll Ali Wong. Okay, She's hilarious. Okay. okay, it's the opposite. So I, I've seen Steve's work. I'm going to just call him Steve. I I, <laughs> I know that Ali Wong is a comedian, but I'll just say this: There's a duo, they are brilliant. They're br- They play off. Is of, that? I mean, it's it's dark. I mean, it's definitely mature content like it's don't watch it with your kids (laughs) just warning it um but it just it has it touches on a lot again similar to what i mentioned about reading in limbo i'm like wow this is really touching a nerve like as a woman of asian descent and gender and race it's it's huge in this in this show in the series i'll just say that um but it's brilliant how they wrote it and how they bring up a lot of these uh Issues that's been just so under the current, and I feel like as an Asian American, I'm like, wow, that kind of rage, like the emotions, and the subtleties, and just like the the energy, like that these nemeses like I, I mean, I, I'll just share that, yeah, Ali Wong's character and Steve Yuen's character, like they, they have a very, they've got beef, they've got beef. It's, a, <laughs> you, I think you could figure that out. I'm not going but the beef runs deep, <laughs> and you know, similar to In Limbo, it's a lot. They show, their, I think the show does a good job of talking about trauma, you know, and both their characters are children of immigrants, right? So even if you're not of Asian descent, I think a lot of folks can relate, you know, on that level of just um, intergenerational baggage. Yeah. <laughs> and, and how beef comes up in weird ways, you know, in, in our society and it's also very American. I'll put it that way. I think it highlights a lot of stuff that has been in in current events and it's very timely. And I just think it's just, it definitely generates for a lot of conversations. Like I know I was texting a lot with another um, friend of mine who's Korean American. I'm like, wow, this is, they've tapped into, they've tapped into a nerve, like a lot of nerves uh, that just for so long, you know, I think, you know, If you look at maybe academic scholarship and whatnot about like trauma, intergenerational trauma, and like you know the looking at statistics of like mental illness, you know issues specific to like APA communities. Let's say you know yeah, it's out there, right? But like it's it shows like beef that really is like because it's about the using the medium and and creative writing and good storytelling and characters. I mean that is what people will want to watch and access and um, be able to kind of like hopefully deeply reflect more on um, the issues that they um, that they bring up. I'll just leave it at that. But it's, it's just very engaging. It's intense. I'll leave it at that. And I know that I'll just say this because it's been in conversation to David Cho. He's just said things that is misogynistic and really triggering. And I will just say like, that's unfortunate that he was casted. I'll just say that. And I just say this because I I do have a friend um, who said she felt very triggered seeing him. So it's like, if you skip uh, episodes where he's in it, that is understandable. (laughs) But you can still kind of enjoy it um, when in in the episodes that he's not in, like there's still a lot you can get out of it. So
0: beef. Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's intense and good.
0: And we'll return to the show after a quick break. Enjoy the latest movies, music, ebooks, and audiobooks instantly with Hoopla! Cranston Public Library cardholders can borrow up to five instant titles each month with no wait times or holds. You can download the free Hoopla Digital mobile app on your Android or iOS device, or visit www.hoopladigital.com to begin enjoying thousands of titles from major Hollywood studios record companies, and publishers available to borrow for instant streaming or temporary downloading to your smartphone, tablet, and computer. Looking for another way to keep up with what's going on at the Cranston Public Library? Sign up for our email newsletter. You'll be among the first to learn about upcoming programs for kids, teens, and adults, and new services and collections coming to your library. Subscribe at CranstonLibrary.org. So I want us to have enough time to talk about your work now Mm -hmm. that we talked about a lot of other people's wonderful work. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to talk about um, your two comic biographies Mm -hmm. and, and kind of why you decided to highlight Chinese-American voices in, and these particular Chinese-American voices in your work?
1: Yeah, so, um, I, these stories actually, I feel like they, they kind of came to me, right? It's like some, you know, it's, I don't know if I'm sounding like Trigger or something, it's like, I I wasn't seeking to try to self-publish long-form, longer-form um, com, works of comics. Like, I've done comics, zines, like mini-comics, I've been to zine festivals, and it was just a way for me to keep my creative practice going. I So kind of quick summary of me, like I went to college and I majored in studio art and art history. So I love the arts. It's always been, I always, it's always just, it's, it's just my joy and my light. It's just something that just keeps me going. It feeds my soul. <laughs> and so, you know, appreciating it and creating it and sharing it. So zines were an accessible way. As we discuss, discussed before, you just need, you know, magazines, pen, paper—it's very accessible. Anybody can make it, share it, whatever. So I got into zines that way, and um, and then eventually into like comics, I mean, comics festivals and whatnot. And then um, so back in twenty sixteen, um, I went to New York Public Library in Chinatown, uh, Manhattan. And that branch, they had this Chinese American herstory exhibit. So first of its kind. I've never seen anything like it before. It was independently curated and the library hosted this exhibit and it was um just highlighting chinese-american women who broke a lot of boundaries in terms of legal history so supreme court cases who was the first chinese-american federal circuit judge stuff like that and so who was the first chinese-american woman who voted and that was tyler and schultz and i had never heard of who she was and she seemed really intriguing you know they just had one portrait of her as a young woman and a brief blurb. And that was it. I was like, I want to learn more fast forward. I had this idea to want to take uh, work with that curator to create that exhibit digitally, but that didn't work out. Um, however, through that endeavor, initially, I got in contact with the grandson of Tyler Schultz, the first Chinese woman American who voted. And he actually did research on me when I reached out to him to kind of just do it a casual interview or kind of learn more about his grandmother and he's so he did research on me and he found some of my comics online and he's like I like the work that you do like I see that you share stories of your own family um your experiences growing up Chinese American and I think that you can do the same with my grandmother's story like bring her story to life in that way because up until that point you know Tyler Schultz like her story was in anthologies. It was just kind of part of exhibit anthologies or kind of select talks. Um, It wasn't really out there. And so I said, okay, (laughs) I'll take up this endeavor, not knowing it would take me about four or five years and, you know, whatever. Um, But I got grant support funding through the years to do field research, to go out to California, do interviews with her family, go into the archives at Berkeley and Stanford to get transcripts, listen to, you know, just meet with people who, and I was like, this is the first time I really learned about this part of American history. It's it's not just my history as a Chinese American, it's like the history, it's a part of American history, right? Because a lot of those experiences and laws and protests and resistance, it connects to the experiences of immigrant groups today, you know, in terms of just like, uh, the, Um, I believe it was the 14th amendment where it's like, if you're born in this country, you're a citizen. That wasn't always the case. Like that was contested, you know, in California by a Chinese American, a son of Chinese Americans. He was Chinese American. And he, um, yeah, like that, that was a very famous Supreme court case. And I'm like, yeah, we didn't learn this and it would just be so great for more people to know. And um, that uh, a lot of the laws that were, in, you know, part of our history and even currently they're, they're not just like, and people fought back and this is how they did. And so that's why these stories are important to share because there are people who look like me, who look like you. Right? And so, right. Um, it's good to have the, these kinds of counter narratives, right. Especially, you know, there's just, especially these days, there's so much information thrown at us, social media. And so, so that's why, the son, the grandson of Tyler Schultz, he's like the kids, the young people are, they're going to the comics these days, you know, and, and web comics or, you know, like just do the thing where you're going to have, where you're accessible. Right. And so I, that's why I did the book and I'm proud of it. And, um, and it was through that research. I got to learn more about Tianfu Wu, who is the, uh, subject of my second book and so, Tyler Schultz and Tan Fu—they were both women, Chinese American women who lived in San Francisco's Chinatown at the turn of the t- 20th century, and they were just so fierce because, for their time, uh, as women and as uh, women of Chinese descent, like they broke so many boundaries, like that I couldn't even imagine. Like they just weren't allowed to go to school because of racism and because of their gender, right? And so misogyny, right? And so like. They used their education and their res- their resourcefulness to advocate for the human rights uh, on behalf of victims of sex trafficking. You know, which was rampant uh, of you know, and it was rampant in particular with Chinese uh, Chinese women at the time because of the Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, which was passed in eighteen eighty two. And it was effective for 60 years. So Mm -hmm. the first and thus far the only uh, immigration policy that bans a nationality of people from immigrating. But obviously people found loopholes, and mostly men. It was mostly men, migrant laborers, who built the railroads and did agricultural work. But there was a dearth of women. And so that opened up the door, unfortunately, for human trafficking, for sex trafficking. And so, um, so they... These two women, Tyler and Schultz and Tianfu, they worked with this Presbyterian mission home that is still active today. It's now called the Donaldina Cameron House in San Francisco. So Donaldina Cameron was uh, the supervisor, the matron of this Presbyterian home that served as like a boarding house, as a a safe refuge for these uh, sex trafficking victims. And so um, Tyler Schultz was not a victim of sex trafficking. She was a child of Chinese immigrants um, and she ran away uh, to this home, this church because of, she didn't want to uh, be a part of this arranged marriage situation that her parents were like, go marry this Chinese guy in Montana. She's like, no, I'm 13, 14. I don't want to do that. (laughs) She's like, so she knew enough English. She had enough education. So she basically, you know, worked at a very young age and, um, had a lot of opportunities to help her community, uh, that way. And she actually was the first Chinese federal government worker. She was a translator at Angel Island, which was the Ellis Island of the West coast. Um, and so to actually help the government figure out if there were women coming through who were being sex trafficked. And then Uh Tian Fu Wu, yeah, who is her counterpart, they're around the same age. She was a, she was a, she was a, trafficked as a child as an indentured slave as a child um and so she was sold into slavery by her father unfortunately um and you know at the time in china there's a lot of poverty and a lot of stuff so so she came over and was abused but um the church helped her out of that situation with the help of a good samaritan a neighbor and so they both dedicated their lives to helping to working with the church, you know, to like pay forward basically. And in in turn, you know, they risk their lives. Obviously you're dealing with organized criminals (laughs) and, Mm. you know, corruption, right? So they did risk their welfare to help these women, you know, publicly by showing up to courts or, you know, to translate. Um, And also, you know, that's a highly sophisticated skill, right? Like not anyone, not anybody can just do that. Um, but also they showed up to brothels. They showed up to wherever these women were held captive, girls and women are held captive to translate and to be like, Hey, we're here. We got to get you out. And they did a lot of the cultural brokerage. Um, and yeah, they just, and it's all in my books. So, but, um, and they are available at various libraries. I'm happy to donate your life, to uh, send some copies to your library if they're interested. But, awesome. um, yeah, they, they just, I was like, these are, fierce stories and it's just like this is back in like you know the turn of the 20th century you know and this is like this is like um incredible like that they were that they just persisted despite like so the odds were they had so many odds stacked against them like I can't even imagine because I I was born in the 80s so I take for granted that I could just get public education everyone has that right no <laughs> if you learn your history like that's not the case based on your race and gender like you can't just get an education vote right um yeah and so it's just you know it's two major things right and it's just so it's a reminder it's like you know um this they they're both very they in their stories, they've appreciated just how they've appre- the they've appreciated the opportunities they've had, to, you know, to advocate for themselves while dealing with the discriminations they faced. Um, and it's just, yeah, just a reminder for readers today: don't take this for granted. And you know, you too, like them, they're ordinary people. They're people we didn't know about. But I also hope it's a reminder, like you know, what don't feel downtrodden. You know, I wrote, I published these books during COVID. And there's the rise of anti-Asian hate, which has always been around, right? Like, it's just that was just very intense and very public. And, you know, you had tense, like, but I'm I'm like, when I was doing the research and sharing this, and I wanted to put it out into the world during that time, this isn't new. Unfortunately, these kinds of anti-immigrant, xenophobic acts of violence, it's it's a fabric it's a part of our history right like this isn't anything new and don't let anyone tell you otherwise like there's records of it just people don't know and we weren't taught in schools hopefully that's interesting but like but that's even being debated now right and i'm like no that's why we need this stuff so i'm a huge advocate for zines and self-publication for this reason You know, and as I say this, um, it's really unfortunate. I think that it's public. It's public news. Like Scholastic has um, they've been on blast because there there's this children's author who who's Japanese American. And she wanted to share uh, her story of her grandparents who met at a Japanese American internment camp.
0: Oh, I love in the library. I looked at this book the other day. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And they wanted her to take out the word racism. And I was like, wow. <laughs> okay. So this is where we're at in today, 2023. Okay. So when I, when I'm like, I, when I self published this stuff, I was like, wow, my work's, you know, and I'm just like, I'm not saying any, this isn't controversial. Like, this is truth. Yeah. It's just like people who, in the case of Tyler and Schultz, she did break laws. And I wanted to actually share that because, again, those laws were not just. Like, she fell in love with a Caucasian man at her job, right? At, and they weren't allowed to get married because of anti-miscegenation laws in California. So they ran away to Washington State. I saw their marriage. certificate. They had to lie about their professions. and And I guess they felt like doing that would make it safe, you know? But they came back. They lost their jobs, <laughs> right? Because everybody knew. And that, like, this is real people. Like, and 1965. That wasn't until the Supreme Court made with the Loving case. They, yeah. it wasn't Until 1965, it hasn't even been a hundred years when in this country, you know, finally, it's like you can openly ha- be in an interracial relationship. Like, you were. It's you're not going to be shunned. You're not going to lose your job. You're federally protected if someone tries to s- discriminate against you because you marry someone of a different race. Yeah. And this is our country. So she did that back in like. Nineteen twenty you know, back in like the early twentieth century, I was like, that's pretty bold, like <laughs> this lady like yeah. you know it's very bold they were both bold, but I think in for her particular because of her status, but I think and also the other thing is, um, and it's it's public information, and you know, I shared this with the family, like I shared drafts with them, but she helped women get abortions. here we are twenty twenty three okay, who I did not even imagine this when I put out the book, but like I was like, oh,, whoa, like. Right. And so she was arrested because she, you know, like uh, it was this how women back in the day, like in where she was living, um, like it was the organized crime, like or these criminal organizations kind of were the go to, you know, if you wanted to get an abortion, they you have to pay a fee, you know, they knew where you could go. And she was sort of that broker. Like she knew how to get women in her community where to go and basically escort them. And, and I was like, Whoa, like that, that's like serious stuff. Like, it's just like, that's like risky stuff. And you know, so but she saw a need in her community, like, um, and, you know, so she took that risk. And so I was like, she, she did a lot, you know, she definitely breaks a lot of stereotypes, which is why I shared that. It's not kind of like, Ooh, you know, like to be provocative. It's more of like, she's an ordinary person. And she sees that her community, particularly women, you know, Chinese descent, like did not have access to uh, resources that a lot of other people had. Um, or had difficulty with, but they had even more difficulty because of language, you know, maybe, and maybe culturally like taboos and stuff. But I just wanted to show like, well, this is a person who she was known in her community and she just very unassuming, you know, but she also breaks a lot of stereotypes. Like I think in the, in the Western world, it's like, Oh, you know, people still think, Oh, if you're Asian, you're just like submissive or especially if you're a Chinese woman, you're just, you're not going to speak up or whatever. I'm like, you know, was she loud? Was she brash? I don't you know. I don't know. But she certainly liked to have a good time and certainly was like, okay, this is the law, but I'm going to break it, you know, because it's, it's not serving my, my community. Right. Yeah. But, um, you know, but she also was very human and I wanted to, to share that part of, you know, her just to kind of be like, she, she loved to gamble. <laughs> she loved to have a good time. She, um, did things that she knew would Ruffle feathers, maybe, but she wasn't doing it just to ruffle feathers. She just didn't compromise like her values or her vision or just what she felt like she would benefit her and her community. Um, and Tianfu Wu, her counterpart, you know, she was. There were different personalities, and uh, but Tianfu Wu was also a woman who stayed very true to her values, and um, she never. Her counterpart Tianfu like never. She never married and you know, um, she was just, uh, you know, again, someone who wasn't afraid to speak her mind and to, um, yeah, take risks, you know? And it's just, despite, you know, all the obstacles and I just wanted it to those stories to kind of be something that was, um, accessible in many ways, but, um, really more for that, like that piece of just, Hey, this isn't new you know, and we, we can look up to these women who there, I would feel, I would call them my spiritual ancestors. I'm not related to them by blood, but I'm really grateful that I encountered that exhibit back in 2016. And it took me on this journey where I reconnected to um, like, yeah, just this history that relates to my experiences. And it gave me a lot more context and understanding and appreciation of like, my grandparents and what they and went through and also just experiences that are very similar to anybody who is, who is a descendant of immigrants, you know, yeah. um, you know, but in particular, you know, what's going on today, you know, you know, on the borders, you know, on the Texas borders and whatnot, just like what's going on there. So lots of connections, intersectionalities, um, and hope, I I hope, (laughs) I find that there's hope in, in the stories that I've written because that's what I needed. And that's kind of, and I know that's what a lot of people these days in particular need. And so that's what motivated me to share the work in the way that I did and to do it in a format through art, you know, through word and image, through illustrations, through collage. It was a lot of fun doing historical photo, photo historical research, historical photo research, because, um, it was a way for me to uh, really see, you know, this community at that time uh, during that era that I hadn't really been exposed to before. I'm like, oh, that's how people dressed back then, and it was just a, it's just like a really great way to connect to a different time. Um, that, you know, um, you know, just to kind of see what these individuals might have seen in their day to day life and viscerally, like, kind of experience that through storytelling. So yeah. So
0: um, just briefly, in case people missed it at the top, uh, can you just say the title of both of your books and where people can find your books and your other work if they want to find out more?
1: Sure. So I'll just start with my website. (laughs) It's easier. So you can find both my books and where to buy it on www.waterpigpress.com. Um, and the first book is called Tai Liang Schultz, Translator for Justice. And the second book is Tian Fu Wu, Freedom Warrior. And they're both, uh, self published through my imprint, Water Pig Press. And I call it Water Pig because I was born in 1983. It was the year of the Water Pig. And cool tidbit trivia. I, of course, looked up the animal zodiacs of both women of Tyler and Schultz and Tianfu. And they're both also born the year of the pig, but they they were born the year of the fire pig, I think. So I was like, oh, I I didn't
0: realize that there were different
1: elements. Yeah, I didn't know that either until recently. I think until I looked theirs up and I was like, oh, like there's the different 12 animals of the Zodiac, but there's also different elements. And that's kind of pretty cool. I just feel like the more I, you know, go down that rabbit hole learning about different stuff like astrology it's like very complex including western astrology too it's like oh yeah moon signs rising signs and i just think that's so fascinating
0: <laughs> yeah that, i'm gonna look up stuff about that after we uh, yeah after we talk because i'm i'm very intrigued by that there's like an element uh, an element element yeah to the chinese zodiac that i didn't yeah. know about so we wrap up the show with a segment I call the last chapter where we talk about a library or bookish related question. So I thought I would ask you, how do you organize your shelves at home? So like oh as gosh. a, uh, as a librarian, obviously <laughs> there's a specific schema for your books to be like at work.
1: <laughs> oh, I, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I'm actually in the middle of just my living room is a total chaotic mess because it's also like, um, my studio space. So I'm trying to reorganize stuff. I actually had a shared studio space in another, like site. And then I decided to give up that space. So I, I was, you know, I had all this stuff like all over the place. So long story short, I, um, in terms of my books, like it's mostly, I don't, I'll just, you know, I have shelf like, it's like, this is my graphic novels, comic section. This is my poetry section. This is my spirituality section. It's like, pretty loosely organized. Like, basically, I shove a book wherever there stays. I'll be honest. <laughs> um, as I buy more of it, I bought a lot during COVID. Um, otherwise, if they're not on a shelf, they're just literally in piles and stacks on my sofa or on the floor. <laughs> like, it's it's kind of haphazardly organized. Um, so that's how I organize love-ups. <laughs>
0: It's kind of because I feel like you aren't the first like library yeah. worker professional to tell us like there's it's not, not a lot, yeah. it's, There's not a lot of organization yeah. going yeah. on. It's I feel like it's almost like there's so much organization at work that like at home it just kind of uh, has to do its own thing. But also a smaller collection that works. Of uh, you know what I mean? Like we need to know where things are at work because we're dealing with more materials than we ever could remember. Yeah. But like when you're looking at your whole collection on one shelf, I feel like it's a lot
1: easier to be like,
0: this is generally this and I'll find it.
1: Yeah. And I live (laughs) on my own. So fortunately, it's like I'm not dealing with anyone else's. But I was like, I don't know where your book is. But I just have to be careful because I, I check out a lot of library books. So I just try to make sure to have some loosely, like make sure to put that in a separate pile so it doesn't commingle and get lost. That's yeah. my biggest fear. It's like don't lose that library book. <laughs> so um yeah, usually like the books that are in stacks are books that I I read multiple books at once. Like I just I'm that kind of a reader. Like I'm just like, ah, oh, I can't, you know. And so um yeah, that's kind of the reason I have books stacked on the floor and the sofa. But yeah, mostly I have comics, not a surprise. So I have like my comic <laughs> shelves and I have some poetry books and um, spiritual teaching books. And that's about it. Art books. I moved around quite a bit. So I tried to be pretty minimalistic in terms of when I buy books, it's like, I really want that book. Otherwise I'm purely happy checking out copies at the library.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Same. It's, it's really easy. I'm there every day, you know? Yes. Yeah. But especially when I moved into my first apartment with my partner, we uh, I had to do, I had to really pare down because there's only so much space in our
1: apartment. You gotta do what works. It work? yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's just like if it's your shelf, you do what you do. You know, you do it with it. And yeah, I'm just very fortunate. I don't have to worry about like another person being frustrated with me and walking or walking around stacks of books be like why is this on the floor like <laughs> I tried to make it so that I don't trip over it like that's also yeah. my main thing it's like I don't want to physically put myself in harm's way <laughs> but like but you know um it's just it always happens like the, it, the piles just build higher and higher like and I'm like how did this happen Like, I literally have like a mountain books but um, but it's also very comforting in a way. I don't know if it makes sense. Like, I'm not a hoarder. I just want to put it out there. I'm not a hoarder. I like to collect things. And um, I'm just in this phase right. it's like spring cleaning. It's a perfect time. It's like, okay, I'm going to reorganize my stuff. I'm now having, like, a dedicated studio space in my living room. And um, carts, I love carts. I learned from a mentor of mine, like, carts are your friend and because you, you can always move things around and be creative with space that way.
0: Well... The Honorable Internet Judge, Judge John Hodgman, says that the difference between a, a hoard or hoarding and a collection is a display case. So oh. as as long as you you have shelves for your books, for the most part, um, so it is a collection. Oh, thank you. And okay. not a hoard. <laughs> all right so thank you for coming on and talking with me and thank you everyone for listening if you'd like to respond to our last chapter question you can email us at downtime at cranstonlibrary.org you can also reach out to us via social media with hashtag downtime if you're feeling generous please rate and review on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcast because it helps people find the show and once again thank you for listening and this has been another episode of downtime Downtime is a project of the Cranston Public Library and is produced by Elena Rios, Nomi Haig, Robin Nizio, and me, Taylor Cardillo. Audio engineering by Dave Bartos. Our theme music is Day Trips by Ketza. And our ad music is Happy Ukulele by Scott Holmes. Links to the books and movies discussed can be found in the show notes. Remember to rate and review Downtime on Apple Podcasts. Connect with the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the hashtag DowntimeCPL. And if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, send an email to downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the speaker's own and do not represent those of the Cranston Public Library. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. The Cranston Public Library name, in all forms and abbreviation, are the property of its owners and its use does not imply endorsement or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. The content of this episode is the property of the Cranston Public Library and may not be reproduced without express written permission. Join us next week for more Downtime. I forget who writes the books that I'm reading all of the time. <laughs> I do know who's re- who wrote both of the books that I'm reading right now, though. So, gold star to me. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs>